Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello, Roots of the Spirit community. I'm pleased to introduce you to today's guests, who happen to be my first interview with brothers, George and Robert Moses. George Moses is the executive director of Northeast Area Development in Rochester, New York. He brings over 30 years experience as a community-based activist, researcher, and executive who understands the need to balance scholarly research with the practical application needed for positive transformation in challenged communities. He is the key liaison for the establishment of the first Western New York Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools and a spokesperson for the Children's Defense Fund Dismantling the Cradle to Prison Pipeline Initiative. Robert Moses is the Director of Economic Development for Northeast Area Development, and he embraces the principle of cooperative economics and self-determination as he studies and constructs pathways to entrepreneurship and employment for local youth and adults. Rob has collaborated for seven years as a community university activist, co-researcher, co-implementer, and co-author on multiple community-based participatory research projects. Their mission is to improve the quality of life for residents in the Northeast Area Areas of the city of Rochester. Without further ado, George and Robert Moses. Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast, George and Rob. It's a pleasure to be here, my sister. Our pleasure as well. You are my first interview with brothers. Yes, ma'am. And it was interesting <laughs> how you, when you met us and you said, oh, you're brothers. Yes, we're brothers. At the top of every episode, I like to talk about how I became acquainted with my podcast guests. In this instance, we actually met through my little sister, Layla. Layla lives in Vancouver, Canada, and she came to New York for a week-long workshop at NYU's Graduate Center. Back home in Vancouver, my sister is a research coordinator for participatory action research for the Living Wage for Families campaign. In light of her work, she came to New York to take part in the week-long workshop. And actually, George, I'll let you chime in on the details of the workshop itself. Anyway, she brought her toddler, my beautiful nephew, Sahail, with her on the trip. I had the golden auntie opportunity to take care of him for the week. And one day during the week, Layla invited me to the university to bring Sahail so we can all have lunch together. And that's where I met you both. As a matter of fact, Layla had mentioned you both in one of our conversations one evening when she came home. She was talking about your incredible community work on a grassroots level, but also on a large scale level in Rochester. So I was already really looking forward to meeting you. So it's really awesome. Now you're on the podcast. Tell me about the workshop and what did you take away from it? I'm going to, this is George. I'm going to answer it two different ways. I'm going to talk about what it was and I'm going to have Robert do his perspective on how he thought it, but I'm going to give you first the rest of the story on actually how you got there. Your sister, and I understand it a lot more after listening to your podcast about how you two grew up. Layla was so interesting because when she was first there at the workshop, which was the Institute on Critical Participatory Action Research, part of the Public Science Project. So we're actually community-based scholars. We're studying ourselves. And instead of having universities come in and take our data, we work with them. And Robert will talk a little bit about the co-research, co-implement, and co-author. But your sister was at our table. They grouped us. And your sister was at our table. And I would hear, she would be like, as they're talking, she would say under her breath, my mom said this. My mom said that. And it was interesting. And I would, it would be great things. I'm like, wow. 
I'm sitting in my mind because we're all a bunch of researchers. And I'm like, well, who is her mother? <laughs> she keeps having all these great sayings. Who is her mother? So I said, well, who is your mom? Write her name down so I can look her up because I had actually cited something that Layla said. And then she kept saying, well, you got to talk to my, you should talk to my sister. You should talk to my sister. I said, now you're talking about your mama. Now you're talking about your sister. <laughs> who are you? <laughs> And I said, well, your sister is here in New York. She said, yeah, I'm staying with her. Because she kept talking about, we heard about how her baby, how he was having troubles and he wanted to be under her. And I actually suggested to her, well, just bring him. What's going to happen if you bring him? She said, I don't know if my sister will bring him. I said, just ask her, what can happen if you bring her? I guarantee you that nobody is going to say no. That's why when you came, I was saying, here, go in this room. You were incredibly hospitable and nice. Everybody was so nice. I got lunch. Everyone was holding the baby. We're hanging out with the baby. So yeah, we felt welcome. So we invited you and you came and your sister said, she really um, said, look, you got to meet my sister. You got to meet my sister because as she's saying the names. So that is the rest of the story. Now I have Rob kind of talk about uh, kind of some takeaways from what the workshop was about and what we were doing there. As far as the uh, participatory uh, action research and the uh, public science project, when we got there, it was kind of interesting because I didn't know what I was going to be walking into, first and foremost. So I've done lots of collaborations with the university over the last 10 years. With the university and the community, we established Rock Freedom University. So that's part of our, our research team that we were doing research in and around the store and the community in which we serve and whatnot. So it was all about co, being able to co-author, co-implement, and do co-action research with the university as opposed to having that lab rat effect that they're coming in, studying you, and then taking the information out of the community, and the community never sees, okay, where are we at? Are we growing as a community? They don't share the data historically. So I wanted to make sure, like, when they come in this community, we are establishing who's, whose voice counts in this community. And I believe that I'm the expert in my own community. So when they come in the community, the university, per se, we want to make sure that the rules of engagement are established immediately. I was actually at the Schomburg last night, and the conversation was around school desegregation in New York City schools and just the language around it, the codification of language, mm -hmm. euphemisms, et cetera. And at the end of the conversation in the Q&A, a young woman stood up and she said, I'm tired of my lived experience not be taken into account. And just like you said, it's all about lab rats and like doing all of these. They actually talked about experimenting on people of color in terms of the educational system, housing, quote, low income, like all of these people's lived experiences are not, the voices are not heard. Exactly. Well, one of the things, George, that I took away from the workshop was um, participatory action research can be used as a tool because what it does is as we um, are getting studied, we have to do a better job of studying ourselves, codifying our data and presenting our data as experts. As Rob said, we are the experts on ourselves. No one will know us better than we know ourselves. So we're not passive victims in this. We're active participants, but we have to assume that role that what I have to say is very valuable. We have to value the things we have to say and how we say those things. So one of the things we took away from it, this is actually a tool that we can use. It shows a process of taking data, our words, because one thing we know in the neighborhood is we're always talking. You'll have the elders around. You have the guys on the block. Where we got, um, we first were introduced to the research, we would hear them citing folks. They would say something and then cite where it came from. They would say something and cite where it came from. 
And one of the biggest ones they kept saying is Apollo Freire. And it was interesting because as they were saying these things, I was like, well, that's the same thing my grandmama said, but we're not citing my grandmama. So what we started doing was we started citing our own people. So again, that's how I met Layla. She was saying some things from her mother and I started citing her mother. So we have to then own, we have to own it. We have to own our words, own our story, own our past, own our lived experience, and then express it. This is just another venue in terms of action research to explain it. It's been our experience from the very beginning. We, it's the tradition of the sage. We've always had sages, so it's not necessarily a new, even a new concept, but it's a, an evolution and it's a way for others to understand our lived experience. So it's like, okay, here, let us help you understand some things that we know and we do naturally. That's the key. <laughs> That's why I founded Roots of the Spirit, because it's kind of like Sankofa. In order to understand where we are right now, we have to understand where we came from. Like I created the podcast to have honest conversations about race, racism, and social justice. And your concept and practice is the key. However, there are so many structures in place that prevent that from flourishing to the degree that I think that we need. At this point, I want to go back and then we'll come forward again in the spirit of Sankofa because I want to kind of take a track on how you took the path that you took to get where you are right now. George, one thing that stood out to me when we met is you made a reference to the fact that you are brothers, but your life experience took you down different paths to land you in the work that you do now. But I'm really interested in your upbringing, what your experiences were like in your community that you grew up in, and take me on a journey so that we can see like the different paths that you took to get to this moment moment this rob so at home um 13 brothers and sisters seven or eight of us by the same mother and father so seven or eight of us in the same household growing up i wouldn't necessarily say we were poor because if we were i necessarily didn't know it because we made a lot of things work i watched my brothers be the head of the household in the absence of my father but not necessarily saying that my father was absent because he was like a big dad he was a community dad so my father was everybody's father. I didn't know a lot of my cousins or other family members. I never met their fathers, but I always watched my father give them discipline. So with that said, we come from a big family and there's only so much to go around. So education was big for us growing up because we understood that wasn't nobody gonna help us but us. So I think my brothers spearheaded that because they always excelled in school, excelled in sports, and tried to excel in anything that they were doing. So one thing I can say about us as brothers, we're all competitive. And with that said, um, just growing up in the neighborhood, everything was good to a certain point. And I think until like the 80s when maybe the crack epidemic hit, where you started to see more vividly how the community, the classism started to change or the the vibrancy of the neighborhood started to change. You started to actually see what poor was and what, you know, for that matter. So you said there was a shift. What would you attribute that to? The economy in itself, more social programs being gone. I remember growing up, there was a lot of things, whether it was camps and sports programs and stuff that we were privy to that all of a sudden, like with the blink of an eye, they were all gone. So access to being able to do things in the community, fun things, were starting to be depleted. So, you know, you had to figure out a different way to necessarily entertain yourself or whatever. How about for you, George? What was your perspective? What is your perspective? And Rob is actually being very modest in terms of uh, his story. And I know more of his story 
as you talk about Sankofa, because one of the initiatives that we've actually established is called Sankofa Community, where again, we're taking the best and the challenges from the past and bringing them forward and learning from them. So we actually have an initiative with elders in the community and I'm actually fortunate to have my brother with me. So we're starting to remember. We're starting to remember a lot of things from the past that may have been suppressed. So I'm, I've had an opportunity to hear the different versions of the story. So uh, as he talked about how we grew up, our father wasn't in the house. So my mother and father weren't married. I'm the second oldest. I have an older brother, Brian. And so my older brother, Brian, actually assumed the role of like the man in the house. He was very smart. And we were just always blessed to be, we were smart. And my mother actually told us the story later that she had to fight because when she knew we were gifted, they would never actually recommend us to any type of gifted programs. So we were, I'm going to say forced, but we just, we were, we were a family. We survived with each other. We took care of our little brothers and little sisters. I remember times when we actually, this is back in food stamps. We actually um, would go to the, the bank to pick up the food stamps. So you got to picture this. You got five kids between the ages of 12, 13, 13, 12, 11, 6, 5. We're going down to the grocery store. <laughs> we went to the bank. My older brother, my mother had trusted him. Um, and he went down. We got the food stamps. We went to the, to the store. And we shopped. And we got everything. And then we made sure we rationed it. And everything. It's just little kids going to the stores and we just survived. So we always found a way to survive and we were just resilient and made it through as far as the home life. And we were never ones to miss school. We actually always loved school. School was a respite. So it worries me now when you see kids pushing away from school. So school was a respite. That's what we could excel at. And we always stayed well in school. But as we moved through school, once we all got out of school, we left. And this is something we're actually uh, wrestling with now. And as soon as I graduated, I'd say 1986 was a, was a good year. Uh, 1986, I was a young father. My oldest daughter was born in 1986, April. I graduated from high school uh, in June of 86. I joined the uh, United States military. Uh, I was July sitting on a curb in San Diego, California, wondering what I had done with my life while I joined the military in 1986. And then I just compounded and made my life more difficult. I got married in December of 1986. So 1986, but I was just gone. So then we got kind of separated from our brothers and sisters. And then they were just, the security they had wasn't there anymore because we all were gone living our own separate lives. But now we've kind of come back and that passion, I'm fast forwarding, uh, for community has always been there. So what Robert said, as far as we grew up in programs until all those programs left, that was put in us that we always have to do for not only ourselves, our family, but the community at the same time. Thank you, George. Switching gears a bit. Rob. Yes. Do you recall the first time that you became aware of the color of your skin? Mm, yes. In, uh, in elementary school, as a matter of fact, because like George said, it, our, uh, the education was always important in our family. So our mother, I remember she, well, they may have went to the neighborhood schools, but by the time I was of age, she didn't allow me to go to the neighborhood schools. Because so, the neighborhood schools had changed by then. Right. So that's an important part. Where the neighborhood schools used to be high quality by the time right. Rob came through, there was a shift. So once back in elementary school, once it started getting to the third and fourth grade, I was going to schools in more affluent neighborhoods where it was only, I was one of maybe two or three black kids that were in the class. So that's when you started to see the shift in things. 
But what seemed out there would be a bad situation kind of started turning good. Why? Because I guess opposites attract for lack of a better term. So being there, you know, I had a lot of white friends. I guess I was, because I was good in sports. So that's where it came into the head of my class. I was kind of intelligent also. So I started to get noticed and I had more white friends. But what was happening is, is at lunchtime is where the classism uh, slept. So most of my white friends, they had bag lunch. They would come to lunch with peanut butter, jelly, do tuna fish sandwich that their parents fixed for them. And I had the free lunch, which was excellent back in the days. It's, t- it's not the way that it is now. So we used to exchange lunch all the time. That's how I had relationships with the white kids in my class or whatnot. Not all experiences were good because, you know, a lot of the white kids or the white boys, for that matter, they were very competitive. And when I would beat them at sports, they thought their classism, because they came from a fluid families, would carry them through all of those things. They didn't know that a, a poor kid from the neighborhood was, was competing with them in education and in sports and whatnot. So it, it, it had brought you a lot of friendships, but it brought a lot of resentments too. But one thing I will say though, and I'll never uh, go back on that, I had a lot of supports from my white teachers coming up in those grades. Cause they were, you know, I guess they understood where I came, my background and where I came from. And they would do things like our class trips and stuff. My teachers paid for mine. I would call my father, he hung up the phone on me. My teachers paid for my class trips. Third, fourth, fifth, and fifth grade. So, I mean, it's, it was a balancing act though. On one end, yeah, I knew I was black and I knew I was different from them, but it had its advantages too. That's really interesting. I have a lot of teacher colleagues in the world of social justice and I'm always, I'm always interested in providing them with real life lived experiences so that they can enhance their classroom environment to make all kids feel welcome and appreciated and valued. And that's, that's really interesting. George, you mentioned that you were deemed gifted, but it was a struggle for your mother to actually get you in the gifted program. Can you elaborate on that? I'm especially interested because that was my mother's experience as well. Me and my little sister, Layla, actually, it may have been more of my siblings, but I'm just aware of us, were considered gifted, but they refused. The school she was fighting with refused to put us in that track. And it shaped the entire trajectory of our educational career. So I'm wondering your experience. Right. And uh, Robert, again, is being modest because Robert was also, uh, and I just heard this experience from my mother, who also participates in our research team, where she actually told us this story three weeks ago. She told us the story of how she, my older brother who skipped a grade, they were actually getting ready to, my older brother, Brian, to label him special education, uh, ADH, attention deficit disorder. Because what would happen is he would always be talking to the other students. And it was at this time, and she said her name, Miss Rose, a black teacher who came to my mother and said, look, your son is incredibly, he's almost genius. What is happening is he finished his work that we have for him at this grade level in like five minutes. And so he goes around and talks to everybody else. She said, he's incredibly brilliant. Don't let them put your child in special education. Let's make a recommendation. He needs to get out of this grade. He needs to go up to another grade where he can be challenged. And it was the same thing with Robert. And so I was right after Brian and I had Miss Rose too. So Miss Rose was like, she told me, don't think you're going to come up in here and not be challenged because I'm riding off the coattails of my brother. So she actually put me in the other program. The first struggle of my brother getting into a gifted program paved the way for me to get in a gifted program. But then she had to fight the same battle again for Robert. So it just, it never stopped. And it's just like, it's a systematic thing that wants to track how do we measure our giftings and how does a school identify 
and we could say um, whatever we thought what our parents could have or should have done, but I am incredibly blessed and thankful that they instilled education in us and they fought for us. Because of those experiences, we are where we are today, and we have the passion that we have today. But I've seen there's a system. There is a system that will track particular children of color into low expectation. It's one of my personal beliefs, and you mentioned it earlier in terms of there are so many experiments going on in the education system. The education system right now suffers from low expectation. George, do you remember the very first time you became aware of the color of your skin? Yeah, I do. It was a little bit more uh, vivid. <laughs> I remember the street, right Terrace. It was off of Miller Street, a little street here in, in, um, in Rochester. Because during this time, not what is happening is the black and the white neighborhoods are, black folks are moving into traditionally white neighborhoods. So we're all kids, we're playing with their kids. There was a, a white family across the street and they had a, um, their son, his name was Pat. We called him Fat Pat. He was Fat Pat because he's fat. So my older brother, as Robert said, we were very competitive. So when we all played, we played to win. <laughs> so we would play in sports with them and we would win and we would, we would win big and we would win big. So uh, Fat Pat got mad at my brother, Brian, because he, he's also a gifted athlete. We beat him in, in a sport. We were playing football. We played football on the street. And then he pushed uh, my brother, Brian. And then my brother, Brian, jumped on him. And then before I knew it, uh, Pat's father came out, grabbed my brother Brian by his arm and then slung him off to the side. And then we all were like little kids and he just let loose what every nigga, every words I had never heard of before. I'm like, what the heck was those? <laughs> I never even heard them words before. And so we're little kids. So we're sitting there and his father is there. He took his son in the house and then my mother came and she said, what happened? And then she called my father. <laughs> He came over, said, who touched my son? We pointed at him, Pat's father. Pat's father came out and whap, whap. I remember it, whap, whap. He punched him in the face. I think his kids ran in. His wife was in the door. Her name was Marsha. She was yelling. She was throwing out more names. We all was sitting there like, wow, you know, now it's, oh, it's a fight. It's a fight. Yeah, it's a fight, little kids. So he runs in the house. My mother says, tell my father, get back over here. Come back over here. Come back over here. Now the whole street is out. Then my father leaves. And then he didn't come back at my father. He ran in his house. So, yeah, my introduction to racism is a little bit more violent. I understand not only physical violence, but verbal violence and the different types of violence that is perpetrated on people of color. I often hear racial violence referred to as something of the past, but it's very much present. So right now we're studying uh, Reconstruction, the Reconstruction period, which is a very violent uh, piece of our history. So one of the things that's really I think not talked about is there's an incredible amount of violence that has occurred and our this whole thing of uh, racism racism is a very very sick practice when you actually think about the mindset of a person just by the i have more melanin in my skin and it, it's, it's it's i can't get to it in my mind to what gets a person to that level to hate a person's race because of tinting melanin of their skin. I can't get there. They will go to the levels of violence. So we're studying uh, reconstruction as a part of Sankofa Community University and the role it uh, plays 
and a pervasive violence that is now occurring uh, by systems because it's a system problem. So we now have like our judicial system. Which could be a whole nother podcast within itself. So yes, totally agree that it's important to make a link from our violent past to today. I'd like to get into how you now use your experiences to make positive changes in the communities in which you live and serve. For the sake of our listeners, can you give me a broad overview of your organization? Uh, Northeast Area Development, we're a community-based organization established in 1965. Uh, We work in housing, economic development, education, community development. So we actually are rebuilding the neighborhood based off of our past experience on what it can be and the potential of people. People, places, partnership, and policy is kind of our tagline. We utilize people, the number one asset. Everything you're going to get done is going to be done with people. Uh, we rebuild the places, the structures that are in the neighborhoods, because if we don't build the physical neighborhood, what happens is our children will see dilapidated neighborhoods and normalize it, and they'll see in their little minds that this must be okay, because if it wasn't, the adults would do something about it. So we focus on rebuilding. We do rehab. We do new build, new homes. Uh, partnerships is done through strategic partnerships, who we work with. Uh, to get things done. And policies is not a new frontier because there are policies, words can enslave you. So challenging various policies that are um, actually counter to moving forward with uh, progressive work. Rob, in your bio, one of the things that stood out to me is collective community engagement. Can you yes. describe your specific role in the organization? Okay, well, um, I'm community-based economic development director. So You know, I have a community responsibility. I'm like the conduit between the community and the university because as they come in and do these uh, observations or collect the data and stuff, I have to make sure that I'm responsible from a community standpoint that the community is not being taken advantage of, you know? So when they come in and out the store each day, you know, because, you know, become, it used to be a transactional space inside inside of our businesses, but we've turned them into a more transformational space where these are community hubs and not just a space where you come in and grab something, give us the money, a transactional more type of partnership, and then you leave out the store. In these instances, we know you, we know your family, we build relationships, we have community hubs in which we all gather, whether it be in education, whether it be in the uh, front of economics, and just believing in the social capital and the neighborhood value of not having to outsource for talent within our neighborhood. I believe that our doctors, our teachers, our lawyers are right here. You just have to empower them to be what they are. Tell me about some of the businesses that you currently operate. Yes, we have uh, a few businesses. We have a a convenience store. We have a restaurant. We have a cafe, um, a few other um, business entities. Yes, intergenerational model. You have to have that, you know, connect the pieces. Otherwise, we have those generational, those are, that's how generational gaps are created. Talk to me about that intergenerational collective work. Well, the intergenerational, the way that it's supposed to work in a positive way is that as the elders, once the elders pass the knowledge and information down to our generation, we then pass it down to the younger generation in the same fashion, you know, that we were taught, you know, that collective work responsibility, you know what I'm saying? The, the transformational pathways to success as a neighborhood. You get the knowledge from the elders, you take it, absorb it, do with it, and then you keep that door open for the next generation to be able to do the same. That way the dollar regurgitates in the same neighborhood. Because if it doesn't, then you don't have real systemic change. So what does that mechanism look like? I'm trying to have a visual representation of intergenerational collective work and action and community building. Is it in the store? Is it in the community centers? Uh, One word I would use, this is George, is intentionality. 
You have to understand who is not there in terms of the generations, as Rob articulated, the elders, the adults, the college students, the teenagers, who is missing, and then be intentional in your work and making sure that they're represented as you see them. So we have a partnership for a franchise pizza place. We actually work with the elders who actually knew what the, uh, the pizza place was back in the past, what it should be, what those good times look like. They work with us to set it up. So what we have is Motown playing there. When you walk in, you have a sense of nostalgia. But we have the adults as the, uh, the primary supervisor, but they're hiring the teenagers, the 19, 20, 20-something years, they're hiring them. And then during the summer, we actually even bring in the younger group to train them. So opportunities for modeling, but there's intentionality in it. Because as you said, you have to see it. So I'm not sure because you guys grew up in Canada. We actually did, as our growing up, we did see black businesses. We saw, but there's a period of time where like it disappeared. So intentionality and modeling so people can see what it looks like. One of the themes that is recurring throughout every guest that I've had is representation and how representation matters in the classroom, in the local mom and pop store, in the university, in all facets of life. And that really speaks to representation and how, how powerful that is. And how it, it's kind of like you can look at it on the positive side, but also in the challenging, on the challenging side. Exactly. What does that look like for young people who do not see themselves reflected in their worlds? It creates a reality. Senator Wanda Bernard Thomas, your senator in Canada, we have a saying that we have been using National Association of Black Social Workers in Nova Scotia chapter in 1980, ratified, and I'm paraphrasing, that for children of color not to see themselves represented in, in their literature is detrimental because what happens is you don't see yourself. So you're reading all these things and you're gonna struggle. Who am I? Where am I? So you struggle. And we ran across her and she said, yeah, that's something that we did. We ran across her last year. In 2018, a person, we have been using that saying in freedom schools for about 10 years. And we ran across, she said, yeah, that's something that we did. So watch how the spirit is working is a beautiful thing. Freedom schools, yes, that's a wonderful subject. Let's talk about freedom schools. So freedom schools, freedom schools, we hear a lot about what people are saying where the kids don't know about what's going on. They don't know their history. That's correct because nobody's teaching them. <laughs> so nobody's teaching them. It will be a logical conclusion that they don't know. So we ran across uh, Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools, Marion Wright Edelman, which are, you can actually go back to the history of freedom schools, which would probably be a whole nother uh, session because we can go back to the past and where Freedom School started from in 64, and actually the Freedom Schools before 64, but we entered um, the Freedom Schools now, which started in the 1990s, were a, a readaption of the July 64 Freedom Schools with uh, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner. They were down in Mississippi doing literacy schools. So the focus of Freedom Schools is literacy, not teaching uh, the mechanics of reading, but the love of reading, the love of literacy, social action projects, health and mental health, intergenerational mentoring and learning, high academic enrichment. So we found this program and we're like, wow. And our books are books by people of color. So they will see themselves represented. If I were a young student eligible to attend the Freedom School, what would my experience be like? You will experience what freedom actually is. You'll be able to see once as a free person, when your mind is given a sense of freedom, what you can do, what you can do for yourself, 
what you can do for your family, what you can do for your community and your world. And once you're free, a free mind can't be chained up anymore. <laughs> so what is the key to freedom in the school? We use literacy. We start with literacy. And then from literacy, we've, gotten, we've, we've evolved so much since then, but it starts from literacy. So you're starting to read and see yourself. Because remember now, in, our, in the American education system, for the most part, with the exception of Black History Month in February, you won't see yourself or learn about yourself. So now you're learning, you're gonna hear words like Sankofa. You're gonna see other black authors. You're gonna hear these fantastic stories. You're going to give us, a, okay, you read this. What does this mean to you? Does this, re how do you relate to this? Do you relate to this? Why? You get to now express these things that are dormant inside of you. We wake them up. And then we never, we actually don't even advertise at Freedom School. The children do. I have the same experience when I'm working with young people, they come to life when they see themselves represented, but they're not. And just like you said, Black History Month is one month out of the year or they have the privilege of going to the Freedom School in the summer and they get this enriching experience. But how can we get it inside the, the regular school year, so to speak, so that kids can experience this every day? We're going to have to do a lot more research and come to grips with some realities that we may not want to accept. Like? I'm gonna answer, uh, I'm gonna jump back and then jump forward. You have to realize what the education system was, uh, was meant for. What we've been doing is, it's like having an old Model T car, and then we keep making improvements, but it's still the old Model T car. The original intent, and this is, I'm not gonna answer the question for you, I, I, you should look it up yourself. What was the original intent of our education system and what was the original intent of our education system for children of color? But we haven't made major shifts. So when you're talking about integrating this type of curriculum, and I can go over battle after battle after battle of us attempting with great results, with great results, when we've integrated this system into the current educational system and the fights we've had, I can, we can go through data. So we'll have this conversation with anyone, but we'll have it with data. Rob, what has your experience working with the Freedom Schools been like? My life had actually took a different turn. I was actually out on the block when they came and got me for Freedom Schools. You know, I had heard about the work that, because George was at the time, he was doing a community development. He was working for, for NEED at the time. And I, I hadn't came in on yet. I didn't come in until 07. But, um... I had saw, you know, a couple of the trainees and whatnot and seeing how they were working with the children and whatnot. So I was actually out on the block and I just lost uh, my niece. My niece had got murdered. My 16-year-old niece, my sister's daughter had got murdered up here. And it's just like, I had just took a different feel for the streets in itself. So I just wanted to make a change. I couldn't look at the streets and look at the game or life in the same way anymore. So it just took a turn for the better and wanted to just try something different. So um, actually my niece, George's daughter, uh, actually was showing me, I was seeing how they were, I went to a training and they were there. And I was seeing all the movements and things that were going on during the training. And she was explaining them to me as we were going along. As she was showing me, it gave me the interest to want to be part of it. So how was she? Ah, uh, at the time, uh, you talk about 07, um, she was about 16, 15, 14 or 15 years old, 14, okay. 15 year olds. She was, uh, yep. She was 15 then. And I had to be almost 30, you know what I mean? And she was training me into this. And that goes back to the intergenerational model. Cause that shows you how it works in a positive way. Cause once the chain, the link is linked, 
Just like we can give information to the elders, the elders give information to us, the elders can give information to the youth, the youth can give information to us, and so on and so forth. So that's how all the different levels work together in a positive way. That's intergenerational mentorship. But I was actually, you know, introduced to it by her as a 15-year-old and started in the after-school program. So that's another thing outside of the six-week summer program. Freedom Schools also offered the after-school programs. I started in the after-school program of Freedom School, working inside of the uh, inside of the schools, working with the kids in the afternoon. You know, teaching them the love of reading and you know social action projects, how to get involved, how to have the parents get involved, how to do uh, community projects that they can be excited about, where they actually hear themselves in the curriculum also. You know, they help create the curriculum, you know, our cooperative group activities, our opening activities, the discussions that go on with them at the same time. That's how you open up their mind, as opposed to traditional education where the teacher's just talking to them and the education is not with them. So that's what it saw, what it saw and what it did for me. I saw a whole nother way that a child can be enlightened through cooperation and through discussion and through involvement and engagement. And so now you're part of that beautiful cycle that we talked about. Absolutely. We had one of the first programs that collaborated with the city school district in a freedom school model, actually being able to bring it to fruition in the educational setting, you know? We talked about Sankofa, just how we need to go back in order to come forward. And so I'm wondering, as it relates to the Freedom Schools, how does history play a role? History is key because history will show you a cycle. And that's one of the things we're working on right now, a term is behavioral analytics. There are several narratives. Most people believe you'll hear people of color don't stick together. They don't do this. They don't do that. Um, That's not a totally true narrative because if you look historically, you will see Not only have we, can we, we did work together. We can and we have established our own neighborhoods. We can and we have established our own own set of economics. What happened? You look at, you can have the stories of Oklahoma, the several, not just Oklahoma Wall Street, several black Wall Streets. What happened to them? Then you have to come to grips with that so you understand the cycle that as there are uh, progress made, What does, is it individual people or is it a system? One of the things, again, going back to the panel I I attended last night was all around the language that we use to stay segregated in Mm -hmm. schools, neighborhoods, and many other facets of life. The language that is imposed on Black parents and families is that we don't have a tradition of community. We don't have a tradition of economics. We don't have a tradition of loving education, which is false. Yeah, all of false, false, false. false. How do we change the narrative? How do we change the narrative? Because language is power. And how do we... We don't believe our people... I'm a parent also of three children. We don't believe in traditional education because why? It seems like each time we send our children, and my youngest son was a prime example, of his mother sending them to a neighborhood school out of comfortability because it's comfortable for her to drop him off on her way to work, this, that, or the third. So he went to school right up and around the corner where, you know, years ago, my mother would never allow me to go to that school. And it shows like the education of it. It just seemed like they get worse and they come out and you have to answer, you have to reteach after what's being taught to them in the classroom throughout the day. So you see some type of confusion in your child So as parents, we understand like we aren't believing in the traditional educational system, but all the parents who experienced the freedom school model 
it's eye-opening for them and it, it, it increases the parental involvement because they understand where they also fit in the educational system as opposed to traditionally the parents are pushed out of the traditional educational system and the parents we recommend it's open door policy for parents in the freedom school model on that note just going back to what you were saying george about why like the the, the origin of public school and for what that means for children of color. Traditional educational system that we're referring to is infused with white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people on so many different levels on the grassroots, but also in politics, in all of these different ways, trying to push against this incredibly strong system. So I'm trying to think about the Freedom School and what we know it's doing for young people of color, yet there's such resistance. And I say that because I'm really grappling with like, all right, at this moment in time, we see the Freedom School model is working. It is enabling young people to see themselves, to be represented, to thrive and love learning. How can someone who's listening, whether they're an educator, a principal, someone who works for the Department of Education, a parent, a concerned person in society, how can they learn more about Freedom Schools and how to adopt that and bring it into their own community? Uh, we'll give you our contact information. They can call us. We always invite people. We can talk about it, but it's one of, just come and see it. We set up a time and just come and see it and ask your questions. Because what happens is I don't even, I'm not even there to answer the questions. You ask the parents, you ask the young people, because we're not really here to convince people of what we know, because one of the questions was, how do we battle these narratives? We have to tell our own story. You cannot let, he who has the pen controls the history. And we've heard this over and over again, that the hunt will always glorify the hunter until the lion tells his story. And we will laugh, we tell our children this, we have them tell the story from the version of the lion before the hunter had guns before the hunter had all these innovations where the lions are sitting around in their pride. They got, yeah, did you see that hunter? Yeah, look at that. Look at his hand over there. I ate that one. He was trying to walk up on me. He didn't even see the pride of lions on the backside. We seen him coming because we smelled him. We smelled him miles away. We had got him. We just tore up their whole camp. But you will not hear those stories because they don't have a pen. Until we write our own stories, it will continue to glorify the hunter. Mm, mm, mm. And as we move to the end of our wonderful conversation, Rob, what are the roots of your spirit? Uh, the roots of my spirit is, is grounded in, in God. Um, you know, I'm a spiritual man of God, uh, family and community, you know, just always in the spirit of service. And I love to serve the community. Thank you so much. George, what are the roots of your spirit? It's rooted in faith. And if you actually look at faith, what has brought us through, and I'm going to go back to something your sister said, that she said your mom said. We can talk about all the negative things that have happened to us, the atrocities, the family things that have just could have destroyed people. We are still here. That faith has taken us, will take us to where we need to go, but we have to have that own personal relationship with your creator so that you have a way to ask questions and try to get an understanding and don't believe that this is normal. So I have an incredible faith in my creator and God and the work and what our people have gone through and what we can do. Thank you both so very much. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, my sister. Anytime. <laughs>